Take your Bibles, join me in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 5 today, going to pick it up in verse 3. I want to affirm you all for being here. You have braved those scary snowflakes. <laughs> the early service, I thought there was a partial rapture. I mean, I was like, is this, is this acid snow? What is this here in North Carolina that we have that's keeping people home? Uh, It might help that it's Daylight Saving Sunday. That might have something to do with it. Well, I'm excited to jump back into Ephesians. This has been a wonderful journey. Uh, I hope for you, it sure has been for me. And I told you when we started uh, that you could sum up this book with three words, sit, walk, stand. The great Watchman Nee wrote a book about Ephesians called Sit, Walk, Stand. We talked about what it means to sit, our seating in Christ, our position In him, we talked about in the early chapters all the blessings and benefits and the glories bestowed upon the believer because of our position in Christ. Then you get into the middle part of the book and we talk about our walk. What does that refer to? Our life, how we live out that position. Uh, Our life in light of our situation in Jesus. And then we're gonna get to chapter six and we're gonna understand what it means to stand and fight. And we're going to learn about spiritual warfare. But right now, we're still in this walk section. And we've heard Paul use several phrases with the word walk. He said, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He said, walk in unity as Christians. He said, walk no longer like the Gentiles, like the pagans, those nations around you. In the beginning of chapter 5 here, he said, walk in love. Walk in love. And now in this passage that we're in today, he's going to give us another walk phrase. He's going to say, and I love this, walk as children of light. Isn't that nice? That's so pretty. That's so poetic. Can't you just see that on a t-shirt? Can't you see that embroidered on a pillow or something on the front of your journal or whatnot? Well, Paul's not just giving these guys a pithy slogan to adopt. No, he's saying walk as children of light as a directive because of the situation that they find themselves in. You see, they were being assaulted on all sides. In Paul's day, he was encountering the earliest heresy of the Christian church. There have been a long line of heresies that have arisen within Christian circles. And the very first heresy uh, that arose was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know, It means knowledge. These were the guys who were in the know. They really felt they had a secret knowledge. They had an awareness and enlightenment that others did not have. You see, there was a question that that man has always wrestled with, which is how can there be a good God when there's such an evil world? Do, Do you hear that question today? People struggle with that today? Sure, well, the Gnostics said, no, we understand, we, we got the answer to that. Here's how you reconcile that. People say, how can a good God create an evil world? The Gnostics would say, God did not create the world when it was evil. Now, as a Christian, we say, well, amen, I believe that. God did not create an evil world. He created a perfect world. We're the ones who messed it up. But that's not what the Gnostics said. The Gnostics were saying, no, no, God didn't create the world at all. God created the spiritual realm. That's what he created. Nothing physical, just the spiritual. And within that spiritual realm, there were spiritual beings, one of which was more physical than spiritual, and that individual is called the Demiurge, and the Demiurge created 
the physical world because he was sort of wayward and bumbling. And so he made this imperfect, flawed, uh, tainted place. God created the spiritual, the demiurge created the physical. Now you're listening to me right now and you're going, Pastor Scott, what in the world are you talking about? I can barely understand you when it's not daylight savings time. Well, I'm sorry for laying all that on you, but just stick with me, okay? The bottom line is, they said God created the spiritual, the demiurge created the physical. Spiritual is good, the physical is bad. And so out of that theological view, they developed a philosophy. And they said the way that you engage in spirituality is to commune with that which is spiritual to have visions. They became preoccupied with experiential things, with emotional encounters, with hearing a word spiritually, with commanding the spirit realm, commanding demons to obey. And and you don't have to think too hard to imagine uh, some strains of Christianity that are rather preoccupied with these things even today. And they said, the way that we deal with the physical, the way that we deal with all these temptations and desires that we have to engage in, in, in sinful stuff, to engage in sexual sin, uh, the lusts of the flesh, all of our greed and our, our avarice and all these things, the way that you contend with that is not to avoid it, not to discipline yourself against it, not to uh, uh, abstain from it. You deal with it by giving into it. You see, because the, the flesh is corrupt. The body is already tainted. You can't improve it. You can't redeem it. So you might as well feed it. Just enjoy your life. Because God isn't really concerned with the physical because he didn't make it. He made the spiritual. And so the spiritual is the only thing that is good. So as long as you are communing spiritually, you can do whatever you want in the body because it's already messed up. And that was their view. And they were very condescending, these Gnostics, to the Christians in the church at Ephesus who would say, well, we just want to honor the Lord. We want to be obedient. We want to be moral. We want to obey the commands of Christ. And these Gnostics would just kind of smile at him, pat him on the head, and say, oh, you silly child. You just don't, you just don't understand. You're just not enlightened. You just keep trying. You keep coming our way. We have the knowledge. You need to be enlightened like us. Does that sound like the world that we live in? Is that philosophy out there? Do people look down on folks that have a very black and white view of morality that understand that there there is a wrong and there is a right? Do people sometimes look at us and say, you backward primitive fool, you just don't get it. You don't see it. You're not awake like we are. Does this sound like California sometimes? Hey, does that sound like Chapel Hill sometimes? <laughs> or some classrooms in a, in a certain campus in Durham up there? Yes, increasingly this is the world that we live in. And I, I've heard it said that God allowed Paul to contend with Gnosticism back in the first century because he knew that for the next 20 centuries we would deal with this same errant philosophy. And so Paul is calling the church out He's saying, you walk as children of light in the middle of all this mess. You are the ones who are truly enlightened. And we're gonna look today at what sets us apart as children of light. In a world where everything is gray, we can see vividly because we are in the light. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time in the word today. God, illuminate the text for us, God, that we may take something uh, real, something tangible that we can apply, that we can stand on, something that we can be confident in. 
And we pray your blessing upon us in Christ's name, amen. All right, Paul addresses the spirit of his age, which happens to be the spirit of our age. And we're just gonna look at verse three as he gets started. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. It must not even be named. And so he's saying there's not to be a hint of this stuff among the children of light. And so in your notes, I'm gonna give you several things that mark us as children of light. Children of light are marked by, first of all, in your notes, ethical integrity. Ethical integrity. Now in verse three, your translation may have listed uh, first the word fornication instead of sexual immorality. It may say fornication. Greek word there is pornea. Pornea, does that sound like a word that we know? Pornography comes from that word. Uh, it, it means fornication. It means sexual sin. He adds all impurity. And so this is all sexual sin. And he includes covetousness. Some translations say greed. But we're not just talking about money here. We're talking about, uh, about what you are willing to lay aside in the pursuit of, yes, money, uh, uh, fame, uh, material possessions, status, position, okay, recognition, whatever you're willing to just lay aside your ethics for, lay aside character for. It, it, you know, whenever someone in a corporate sense is willing to undermine people, betray people, backstab people as they climb that ladder, you're willing to sleep around to get advancement. Paul says none of this behavior has any place in the church. There's not to be one hint of this. It's not to be named among you. And the word you is a plural noun, uh, as in the church. He's drawing a line. He goes, this is not of the church. This is of the world. There's not to be one adulterer among you. There's not to be one couple that's not married that is cohabiting among you. There's not to be one crooked business person who doesn't repay their debt who is uh, claiming things to write off that they shouldn't be. None of this is to happen. Not one swindler, not one unethical dealing among the church. You might be saying, well, he started off chapter five saying walk in love. Why would you start off with walk in love and then suddenly dive into all this strict language? Is this legalism? No, this is not legalism. This is Paul calling us to a standard that is related to our identity. This is who you are Walk this way. Do not walk as the others walk. Galatians 5, 9. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. There shouldn't be a hint of sin among you because a little bit of sin will leaven the whole lump. All right? God's not looking for an 80-20 ratio of, un, of righteousness to unrighteousness. He wants all of you. He wants all of you. I learned when we lived in California, I learned that my wife's love language is frozen yogurt. All right, we got anybody that can identify with that? Maybe not around here. We had a place that we loved in Modesto uh, that, that we, don't, we haven't found it here. It's called the Yogurt Mill. We loved the Yogurt Mill. And I would go to the Yogurt Mill. If I knew you know, that I needed to score some points with the wife, I would, I would get a big tub of some flavor that I thought she would like. And I remember one time, and it was in the fall, and I, I know it was in the fall because it was a temporary flavor. It was a seasonal flavor. It was pumpkin spice Froyo, and I knew that my wife would like it because she's, you know, a white woman. And anyway, I brought this Froyo home, and she did in fact like it. 
And it was a rather large styrofoam tub, and so we didn't finish it all. We put it back in the freezer. And a day or two later, she said, hey, why don't you get the Froyo out? And so I, I go to the freezer, I get the Froyo out. I, I put some in a bowl for her. She's eating it. She's like, something's off. This doesn't taste right. I go, really? And I took a bite. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, what the heck is that? That's weird. And I go and I get the tub out of the freezer and I notice on the bottom of the styrofoam carton there's a hole that I must have accidentally poked in the bottom of that carton. And so what had happened is over a couple days the Froyo had absorbed all the smells and flavors of the freezer. And so it was mostly pumpkin spice but there was a hint of taquito. And that was trash now. That was no good, right? Hey, listen, God is not looking for a hint of any of this stuff in us. He wants all of us and he wants us to walk in purity. He says, this is not to be named among you, Paul says, as is proper among saints. I've told you before, you are saints. You say, but I'm not Catholic. You, you are saints. If you know Jesus, that's what the Bible calls you. Latin word is sanctus. Greek word here is hagios, means holy ones. We are the holy ones, and it's plural. Never once in the Bible do you see an individual saint. Does not refer to one saint. Always refers to us as a collective. We are a people. We are a new people, a holy people. And to act like the world is to adopt the actions of a people that we are not. Okay? We are under a different banner. Look up here. Look at that right up there. What is that? That's the cross. What does that symbolize? Some say Jesus. No, it's yes, but it's more than Jesus. It symbolizes what Jesus came to do, where he went for us. He went to Calvary. He died on the cross. Why? To conquer sin. And so when we dabble in sin, we are dabbling in that, which that symbol represents a conquest over. And so we are not to claim that symbol and ironically dabble in the very thing that the cross defeated for all time. It doesn't match up. Your name has got to match your life. You don't call yourself a Christian and dabble in the ways of the world. Your name must match your life. It wouldn't make any sense if your name didn't match your life. What if I told you that in, in high school my nickname was Beanpole or Stretch? Do I look like a beanpole or a stretch to you? I do not. You'd be like, Pastor Scott, I don't know about that. The name's got to match the life. He says it's got to be proper among the saints. And so Paul doesn't back down here. He's drawn a hard line. Too many Christians backing down today, guys. Way too many Christians backing down to the ways of the world. Verse four, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. And so this is the second thing that marks us in your notes. There's pure speech. Pure speech. He says, I don't even want you joking about sin. The, the, the phrase for foolish talk in the Greek is moros logia, moros, moros in the Greek. We get it, the, don't be offended, but we get the word moron from that. That's, that's where the word comes from. In Greek culture, a moron was a, was a buffoon who got laughs by talking crudely. Do we have people making a living doing that today? Absolutely, and it's such a shame. I love comedy. I love to laugh. I love to, to watch a funny movie. You can't go to the, uh, the movies these days and see a comedy 
and not feel compromised in some way. I love stand-up, co- I love comedians, but man, if I, if I hop on Netflix and watch a stand-up special, I'm gonna hear about 20,000 F-bombs. I'm gonna hear a bunch of sex jokes and, and it just violates the word of God. And so he uses this term to describe our own crudeness. You don't talk like that, he says. You don't even joke about it. Why? Because you lose your credibility. What if you went to a Chris Rock show or a Bill Burr show or somebody who's, who's vulgar and filthy and you sit through an hour of that and then they get real serious and they're like, now let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'd raise an eyebrow. You'd be like, are you kidding me? Really? After what you just said? And so this phrase, crude joking, don't even joke about what Christ died for, Paul says. But instead, he goes on, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. Um, this is what your speech is for. Speak differently. Uh, your, your speech is for the giving of thanks. It's to be different. We talk different from the world. The world spends its time talking about things the church should not be preoccupied with. In, in uh, 1 John, rather. First uh, John 2, the apostle says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. You are not from the world. You are from the Father. And what comes out of your mouth cannot be from the world. It cannot be from the world. We are the ecclesia. That's the Greek word used for church. You know what it means? It means called out ones. We are called out. We come apart. We come out of the world. Okay? We are representatives for Christ. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. You ever go to another country and you visit an American embassy? When you go to an American embassy, if you're in France, Spain, Argentina, doesn't matter, you're in the borders of that country, a foreign land, you go to that embassy, when you're inside that embassy, you're on American soil. It is in that country, but it's not of that country. My friends, as Christians, we are the embassy of heaven in this world. There's a banner flying over us, and it's the banner of Jesus Christ. That's our king. Now, the world may not recognize him. The world may joke about him, not respect him, repudiate him. That's our king. We don't expect them to follow him. He's not their king. He's our king. We're his turf, all right? And so we are the embassy of heaven in this world. We're not in it. We're of, excuse me, we're not of the world. We're in the world. And then Paul says in verse five, he says, for you may be sure of this. I'd like you to underline the word sure. That's a very important word. In this world that we live in, this is a postmodern world. We are obsessed with fluidity. We are obsessed with vagueness. What's right for you, that's, that's right for you. What's right for me is right for me. That guy, he's got his own set of morality, of rules, right? And, and everything is very gray. Everything is very fluid. Paul says, you may be sure. You may be confident certain about what he says that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of God uh, of Christ and God what's he saying this is another thing in your notes that sets us apart that marks us as children of light it's a recognition of absolute truth absolute truth we believe in an absolute right and an absolute wrong, okay? There are things that the Bible is very black and white about. The world doesn't like that. And there is a strong caution here 
against sexual immorality and against unethical greed in the church. And Paul says, he says it in strong terms. He says, those that practice that do not inherit the kingdom of God. Does that mean that if you mess up as a Christian, you're gonna lose your salvation? No. He's saying those behaviors are representative of a people that is on their way to hell. So you are not on your way to hell. Therefore, don't act like those people. Don't behave as a people to whom you do not belong. You're imitating. It's like the Israelites in Canaan. They they would want to imitate the surrounding pagan peoples. He says, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. There is no alternative truth for different people. Uh, Oprah Winfrey used to talk a lot about your truth. Speak your truth. I just got to share my truth. I've got to to proclaim my truth. Uh, Come on here and talk about your truth. Tell tell people your, what about the truth? What about the truth? There are no multiple versions of the truth. Your opinion is not the truth because it's your opinion. There is a standard that defines things as good or as bad in the sight of God so much so that Paul says the one who does those bad things, that is characteristic of a people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the culture behind those ways, behind those behaviors, that is the problem with society. They have no solution to offer. We offer a solution, not in and of ourselves, but we represent the one who is the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution. And so when the church gets really preoccupied with trying to be like the world, trying to identify with the world, and I get that the, the motivation is that we might win them, okay? We gotta identify with them to win them. Uh, nine times out of 10, when we strive, strive, strive to identify with the world, to reach them, they end up reaching us, and we end up becoming like them. And that is backward. That's not what God wants. His goal is that the world becomes like the church through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel penetrates the culture. We don't penetrate the culture like, by becoming like the culture, you see. And so what we have next in here that sets us apart, that marks us as children of light, in your notes, is this, a practice of discernment. A practice of discernment. In verse six, Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. He says, don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. There was some philosophical sleight of hand going on in his day. These Gnostics, they, they had duped people in in the church at Ephesus. They'd gotten them snowed because they were very persuasive. They were pulling this sleight of hand. They they said that the body, the Gnostics said the body, the physical world is evil. It can't be of God. He must not have anything to do with it. And since he has nothing to do with it, he must not care about it. And so we know that it didn't come from God. It came from a lesser deity. And so through visions, we discern our own truth And we interact with the spiritual by having experiential uh, encounters. And uh, uh, since our bodies are corrupt and cannot be redeemed, and God doesn't care about that, he cares about the spiritual, let's just feed the body, let's just let the body be, be pleasured in whatever way it desires And so we just let it go. And so they compartmentalize. They they keep the sin in the sin box. They keep the righteousness in the righteousness box. And everything is in its proper place. And it's very neat and organized and orderly. And people live this way. And it sounds appealing at first. But Peter says it's empty. 
Peter says of the Gnostics, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You may think you can dabble in sin, and you keep it hidden, you keep it private, you keep it in its own little box, and nobody ever sees it. And then you go on, you live your life. People do this all the time. People come in here on Sunday, and they amen, and they nod, and they sing all the worship songs that we sang today, and they open their Bible, and they've got some portions of this memorized, and they look the part, and they sound the part. And then they go home, they do whatever they want the rest of the week, and they're compartmentalized. They're compartmentalized. You know, the Titanic had compartments. And when it hit that iceberg, those compartments started to fill up. And eventually, and the goal was, we keep them in their own compartments so they don't overtake the whole thing. Well, the goal was, they, that was the goal, but the, the end goal, the end game, was that those compartments would spill into one another because the whole ship went like this. And then all that water flooded into those other compartments, you see. And the ship went down. And when we compartmentalize, we, we lie to ourselves. You cannot adopt the ways of the world because the ways of the world are a proven failure. And yet we often seek the wisdom of the world. Whatever we're encountering in life, even as Christians, our first thought, our first instinct is to look and see what the experts say. Man, I'm dealing with this. What does Dr. So-and-so say about it? Well, let's poll the audience, right? It's like we're on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And we just kind of poll, take a poll, and we get the collective wisdom, which is really collective ignorance of the world, and we try to apply it to our situation. And that is a flawed philosophy. Paul says, don't do it. The world is a failure. The world is a failure. You know, the New York Yankees, historically, have not spent a ton of time studying the winning habits of the San Diego Padres, right? They don't do that. Why? Because the San Diego Padres never win. They get close, but they never, they never go all the way. I love the Padres. I lived in San Diego. I got very excited in the fall. They were in the playoffs. They beat the Dodgers. I mean, come on. And then they got whooped by the Phillies, you know? And so they didn't make it. And they never win, they've never won the World Series. I went to the World Series back in 98. Some of you Braves fans might remember that, those playoffs, because the Padres beat the Braves. Ha! But then, then the Padres played the New York Yankees in the World Series. I went to game four, and they got swept. Because the Padres never win. It's like a divine decree. I think it's in Leviticus somewhere. And forevermore, the San Diego Padres shall stinketh. You know, I think that's... But the Yankees now, I don't, I don't like them. I don't root for them. But man, that's a winning franchise. They got 27 World Series wins. They are a winning team. They know how to win. They don't study the Padres. Folks, we don't study the ways of the world. We are Christians. We have the Cadillac of all philosophies because it's more than a philosophy. This Judeo-Christian paradigm, uh, there is no parallel in the world. We are the people who are to introduce the culture into the world. And so the, we don't adopt the world's culture. The world is all about self-gratification. It's all about instant uh, service of self. Here's what God thinks about that. Paul says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God. You remember what Paul wrote about the wrath of God in Romans 1? 
He said it is revealed. Everybody has knowledge of God, he says in Romans 1. All people on some level innately, we know there's a God and we know right from wrong. We know it. We have the knowledge of good and evil. We learned it in the garden. Why do we disobey? Because we're sons of disobedience. We're children of disobedience. And what is the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience who perpetually sin? Ultimately, his wrath, Romans 1 says, he gives them over to what they desire. That's the wrath of God. It's not earthquakes. It's let you have what you want in your flesh. And Paul's point is, don't be like that. You are, that is not you. You are not the children of disobedience. You're the children of light. Don't act like the world. Verse seven, therefore, do not become partners with them. Some versions say, do not become partakers with the world. Don't participate. We don't belly up to the table with the world, okay? Uh, now, you can, you, can, you can love them. You can be a physician to them in, in that they are sick and you're tending to their need. You can be a missionary to them, and you should. That's a great commission. Love them, share the gospel with them, okay? Give life to the dead, okay? But don't join them in their activities that run counter to scripture. That, that is partaking in a lifestyle you are not intended to be a part of. Uh, and yet the church repeatedly does this. The church has increasingly become like the world. My father is a pastor, and I remember growing up, there would be young people that would come to him, Pastor Rob, we want to get married. And he'd sit them down, and he'd say, now, are you a Christian? Yes. Are you a Christian? Yes. Okay, when's the wedding? And they'd give him the date. He goes, okay, well, we got to schedule your premarital counseling before you get married. That was it. Today, we can't do it like that. We can't keep it that simple. They come to me, Pastor Scott, we want to get married. I sit them down. I go, are you both Christians? Yes. Next question, are you living together? How come I got to ask that? Because times have changed. Has the Bible changed? Uh-uh. Christians have changed because they have adopted the ways of the world. And you'd be surprised when I ask that question, are you guys living together? How often you hear, well, yeah. Well, of course, because we've adopted the ways of the world. And in a lot of churches, you have to dive deep on this stuff because you, you've got to call people to a higher standard. We cannot mingle with the world and learn its ways. We are Christians. We are Christians. Little Christ. We follow Christ. We don't follow the world. We don't follow Marx. We don't follow Jefferson. We don't follow Trump or Biden. We follow any man. We follow Christ. We follow Christ. Don't be partakers. Rather, he says, verse eight, for at one time you were darkness. Past tense. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is, this is a contrast of the past to the present. You were that, now you're this. Live this way. He's not saying you're better than, the, it's not a statement of superiority over other human beings that are enslaved. This is the reality of, of where you once were, which is where the world is now. And he's saying, but now you are not that. You are not that. You were in the dark. You remember what it was like to be in the dark. What's it like to be in the dark? The dark is a confusing place. It can be a scary place. It's hard to trust your eyes in the dark. 
Some of you are like, I used to trust my eyes more in the dark than I do now. The older I've gotten, the harder it is to see in the dark. I remember uh, years ago when my kids were very small, um, my wife and I, we were, we, were, uh, we were asleep. The room was pitch black. It was very dark. My wife had been asleep for a long time. I was kind of in and out. And I remember opening my eyes in this dark room and I saw a shape. And it appeared to be floating. And it was white. And it was coming my way. And it was kind of bobbing there. And, and then, it, then it landed on, on the bed. And it started to move up the bed toward me. And the moonlight was coming in the window a little bit and it kind of caught this object and it looked shiny. And as it got closer, I could see it was, it was fuzzy. And I thought, oh. and I, I touched my wife's arm. I go, Deanna, Deanna, Deanna. She goes, what, what? And I go, what is that? And she looks and she goes, ah, like that. And then I made the same noise. And then my wife said, oh, no, no, honey, it's Lainey. It was our daughter. It was our little girl. And what I was seeing was the fuzzy white blankie that her nana had made her. It was kind of this shiny, fuzzy material. And what had happened is she'd had a nightmare and she was scared. And she came to her daddy for comfort. And then I scarred her for life. You know. But, but the dark can be a confusing place. We're not in the dark anymore. We see clearly. We are enlightened. See, the world says it's enlightened. No, we are enlightened. Paul says, walk as children of light. Verse 8, you, are, you were dark, now you're in the light. Walk as children of light. What does that look like? In verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fruit of light. I love that phrase. It's found in all that is good and right and true. You and I are encountered, we are presented with various activities throughout our life. Some of those activities we're not sure, we're not sure about. Should we do them? Should we not do them? And so here's a series of questions. These are practical that, that we derive from this text that I want you to ask yourself about an activity that you're contemplating, participating in. And the first question in your notes, is this activity in keeping with God's word? That ought to be the first question you ask when somebody says, hey, you want to go do this thing? Immediately, is this in keeping with God's word? Numero uno, all right? Uh, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Where do you find that which is good and right and true? In the word of God. So you, you run it through the grid of scripture. And then he says in verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Question number two, does this activity bring pleasure to God? Not just is it permissible, but does it bring God pleasure? Uh, the word discern is dekomai, means to test. Test it, is this pleasing to the Lord? Uh, and then verse 11, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. The unfruitful works. Question number three, is this activity empty and worthless? Not, not is it evil, but is it just empty? Okay, unfruitful, unfruitful. Uh, reminds me of Matthew 7. Jesus is talking about false teachers in the church. Paul's addressing false teaching in this church, in Ephesus. But Jesus says about the false teachers, about what their, their words are, you will, you will know them by their fruit, he says in Matthew 7. He says, a good tree produces good fruit, 
a diseased tree produces bad fruit. You ever get some bad produce? You get some nasty produce? There's something wrong with that tree, right? He says, that's, that's the false teacher. Look at the fruit. In other words, look at the results of their teaching. What does it reap in people's lives? And you can apply the same wisdom to any activity in life. If you're unclear about an activity, you don't know. You've, you've searched the scripture. You can't really find something definitive that it's right, that it's wrong. Do you just rush forward willy-nilly and just, just go for it? No, it then becomes a wisdom matter. And you look at the fruit of that activity. What are the results over time that are born out from this, uh, this habit? Uh, or does it leave any wasted lives in its wake? What's the track record there? Does it cause any addiction or hardship? Uh, maybe it, is it just a mindless diversion that I just frankly don't need in my life? Going to be a distraction? Going to be a waste of time? Does this bring me closer to Jesus? Does this deepen my relationship with the Lord in any way? Uh, am I a better person for participating in this? You see, sometimes it's not about good and bad, right and wrong. Sometimes it's about what's best. What's the best use of your time, your, your mind, your resources as a Christian? Because there are some things that look good, that look appealing, but they're worthless. They're not worth the time. They're not worth investing in. There's a, there's a town over by where we lived in California called Columbia. It's about an hour away. It's, a, it's an old gold mining town. And they've got this awesome main street that is kind of a preserved Old West street. They filmed movies there. High Noon was filmed in Columbia. They've got a saloon, a general store, all this stuff. And they've got like a gold, they've got a, a, a gold panning exhibit there you can take your kids and they've got water running down this trough and you get these pans and you scoop up the sediment on the bottom under that water and then you got you you slosh that water around with the rocks the pebbles in your pan and you're looking for gold and you can really you can really find gold you pay and then you you do the panning and you find gold and you know you found gold if you tilt the pan this way all the rocks slide to the bottom but gold will stay up here on top because it's heavy it doesn't slide because gold is very heavy. Now, in those rocks, you might find something that catches your eye that looks like gold. It, it shines, it's yellow, but it, it doesn't stick to the pan because it's not gold, it's pyrite. And we call it fool's gold, right? Well, there's a lot of fool's gold in our world that looks good, that seems all right, not worth investing in, so we are not to take part in the works of darkness, Paul says, but instead, he says, expose them. Expose them. Uh, this doesn't mean that as, as a believer, you go out and you go looking for sin in people's lives and you try to expose them and you know, put it all over social media. This person's doing this, this person's doing this. That's not what that means. But in 1 Corinthians 14, 24, it says, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, that means in a church setting, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. So what we do is we, we illuminate, we turn the lights on in the church. We talk about the reality of sin in the church. We call sin out for what it is in the church. We don't go looking for, we don't try to tell the world about how they should be living because they are the children of disobedience. But in the church, we turn it on 
And we are unequivocal about that. And when they come in, they hear the word of God on this matter. And what is the result? Paul says, verse 25, and as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. I love this passage because you know what? It does incredible damage to the philosophy in so many churches that we've got to make all of our services, all of our events, all of our uh, gatherings relatable to the world. We gotta dumb stuff down. We just, we just go full on uh, uh, identification with the world, present a simple gospel, God loves you, that sort of thing. And we never talk about sin in here. We never do what we call churchy things because the world doesn't understand churchy things. Paul says the opposite. He says, when they come in and they see you being the church, they see you doing what the church is called to do, talking about what the word of God says, what is the result? They repent. They fall on their face. They they admit God is among you. They say, there's something about this place. There's something about these people. I want that. And so we turn the lights on in the church. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Is that too specific? Is that too offensive? In Revelation 21, 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's some sins getting named there. Very specifically, not only what those activities are, but what the consequences for sin is. And what those consequences are. It's eternity in hell. Very specific. And as we go back to Ephesians, Paul continues on in verse 12. He says, for it is shameful even to speak of things they do in secret. They, the pronoun they refers to the lost, refers to the world. It is shameful to speak of the things they do. And how do they do them? They do them in secret, which tells me if they're doing them in secret, they know they're wrong. They know they're wrong. Verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. See, the light seems harsh when you first experience it, but it's for your benefit. It's for your benefit because nobody gets healed in the dark. And so the fourth question I would ask when I'm considering an activity is this, in your notes, would I be all right with everyone knowing about this activity? Is this something I could do in broad daylight, in front of my friends, in front of my family? Okay? And so we have to be able to say with integrity and with confidence that we are living according to our identity. The church does not accommodate Society, the church evaluates the philosophy of society and then visibly models what society ought to be through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I love this verse. Indulge me here. Proverbs 25, 26. This is what a Christian that caves into the worldly ways is like. He says, like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked like a muddied spring. We've got a, a, a beautiful 
we were fortunate to purchase a home and the, and the people that owned the home, the, this man had built this amazing uh, man-made pond in the back. He diverted this uh, creek. He put a little cement dam in there. It's this four-tiered pond. It's, it's really charming. But you know what? It's got several years of leaves in it. And it's got a sediment bottom and stuff. So there's a lot of murkiness in there. And so my daughter and I, and I, I've never had a pond before, so I'm just out there doing the best I can. And my daughter and I had our waders on the other day, and we're waist deep in this pond with a pitchfork and a net, and we're, we're hauling leaves out of this pond so that we could see the bottom, so it could be what it was designed to be. Those leaves don't belong in there. They belong on the trees and on the ground. They don't belong in the pond. A Christian is like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain that, that gives way to the wicked. And so we turn the light on in the church. And Paul continues on, verse 14, he says, for anything that becomes visible is light. You may think that what you're doing in secret is gonna stay secret. It's not. It's not. God will expose it. Either you expose it or God will expose it. What was the tagline for Vegas a few years back? What happens here stays here. That's a lie. That is a lie. One day, everything will be brought into the light. Therefore, it says, Paul goes on and he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, I love this, awake, O sleeper. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now we're talking to the world. Awaken. Awake, come awake. Wake up. He's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah in his book, prophesied about the Messiah coming to Israel. They'd longed for this Messiah. He was the glory of the Lord. In Isaiah 60, verse one, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. This would be fulfilled with the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, we who are Christians, we look back and we see he came. The light came. And now we live in that light. And the last thought here in your notes is that the church is to be a picture of the life God wants the lost to experience. Because the lost are asleep right now. They're gonna sleep through it. You remember the story of Rip Van Winkle? You ever heard that story, Washington Irving? Rip Van Winkle. Uh, he's up in the Catskill Mountains up in New York. It's pre pre-revolution, pre-American revolution era. This man's hiking. He gets tired. He lays down. He takes a nap. He sleeps for 20 years in this story. He wakes up. He's got a long white beard. The, the American revolution has come and gone. He goes down into the town. He announces himself as a subject of the king. And they're like, what are you talking about? This is a republic. He's missed it. He slept through it. All the good stuff. Folks, the world is asleep and they are gonna sleep through the age of grace. We live in an age right now where there's the opportunity for all to come to repentance. We gotta wake them up. And you don't wake them up by laying down beside them and having a snooze yourself. Because even those who are in the light can act asleep in the light. You gotta act like you're awake, okay? Don't, don't sleep your way through the Christian life. We got a job to do right here, right now. There's a world full of Rip Van Winkles that need to be roused to the awareness 
of Jesus Christ and who he is and who he wants to be in their life so that they too can become children of light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon these children of light today. May they walk in the light. May they not sleepwalk today, but may they be aware, uh, illuminated, because we are the enlightened ones, God. The world says it is, but we have the true light of the gospel and the light of Christ that is in our lives. May we be empowered by you, indwelled by you, and may we be confident and sure in our identity and in the calling to which we have been called. And we pray this blessing upon everybody here in Jesus' name. Amen.